you would turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be in verses 53 through 72. Mark 14, 53 through 72. And the title of this sermon is Solid and Crumbling Rocks. I don't claim to understand this, but... American culture is a culture that regularly seems to be obsessed with trials in the courtroom, whether it be Judge Judy or Judge Wapner back in the day for some of you, um, or high-profile cases like O.J. Simpson's. Uh, We're drawn to trials. Well, in today's text, we'll see two distinct and contrasting trials. One the first trial of Jesus, and second, the trial of Peter. So let's dive into the text. Mark 14, verses 53 through 72. This is the word of the Lord. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all of the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now, the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophecy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again, to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, You will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is 
yet again uh, one of Mark's famous sandwiches, as we've called them, where he uses two pieces of bread, unfaithful witnesses, and then places the meat, a faithful witness, right in the middle to get us to see and to understand his main point. So here's how this text breaks down, and our three points this morning are point one, a false witness or false witnesses in verses 53 through 59. Point two, a true witness in verses 60 through 65. And then point three, Peter's witness in verses 66 through 72. So point one, false witnesses. Uh, Look with me again at verses 53 through 59. And as you're looking there, I want us to remember the context Uh, This mob that we read about last week has taken Jesus from the garden. And it's in the middle of the night. So uh, let's just ask the question. What would you think if you heard this morning that a guy got arrested last night after midnight? And that his trial was held under the cover of darkness, not in downtown Santa Cruz at the courthouse, but at the judge's house. And he'd been condemned to death. You, probably like me, would be thinking, that's shady. <laughs> You'd be right. <laughs> well, even in, during Jesus' day, this was highly inappropriate, even illegal what was happening. Uh, we learn in John 18, verse 13, that first they led him to Annas. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. So even before his trial that we read about here in Mark 14, he stood before Annas, who wasn't even the official high priest. He was the father-in-law of the current high priest. We read in Matthew 26, verse 57, that then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Does this seem pretty orthodox or above water so far? Not at all. It reeks of impropriety and injustice. Danny Aiken reminds us also that in capital cases like Jesus' trial, trials at night were forbidden. In cases where a guilty verdict was reached, A second day and session were required to ensure a fair trial. Such a trial should not convene on a Sabbath or a festival. In addition, a charge of blasphemy could not be sustained unless the defendant cursed God's name. And then the penalty was uh, to be death by stoning, not crucifixion. In Jesus' case, no formal meeting of the Sanhedrin ever took place in the temple precincts which was the proper location for a trial. Nor was Jesus provided or even offered a defense attorney. This whole trial is an absolute sham. All of the gospel writers want us to see this clearly. This isn't lawful. Jesus, on the other hand, hasn't broken the law in any way, shape, or form. So that's the setting. And look at what Mark writes to foreshadow where he's going. Look at verse 54 in our text. 
And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. He was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. It's almost as if Mark is saying, pause for a second. Before you start getting outraged and foaming at the mouth about how sinful those guys who are trying Jesus are, keep this in mind. You see what Mark writes. Peter, supposedly one of Jesus' closest disciples, the one who shot his mouth off at dinner, calling Jesus a liar and saying, I'll never deny you, that guy is following him, Jesus, at a distance. I want each and every one of us to ask ourselves this question this morning. And be honest with yourself. Am I following Jesus at a distance? Am I following Jesus at a distance? Here's some diagnostic questions for us. Do the people I interact with on a day-to-day basis know that I'm a Christian? Do they know where my allegiance lies when it comes to Christ? Just to be clear, I'm not saying here that you're standing up on your desk at work and preaching. Do the people you interact with on a day-to-day basis simply know that you're a Christian? Co-workers, neighbors... Other families on your kid's sports team, your Instagram followers, do they know that you're a Christian? If not, you, like Peter, may be following Jesus at a distance. And for good measure, Mark notes that he's warming himself by the fire. So he's comfortable and safe keeping just enough distance from his Savior. So would that describe you this morning? If so, ask yourself honestly, what kind of witness has God called me to be? A witness that's, that's comfortable and distant? Or one that's closely and unmistakably connected to Christ, regardless of the outcome? move on in the text. So the whole structure of this trial, as we've already seen, is a sham. But look at what Mark writes in verses 55 through 59. He says, now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. So, does this seem like a a truth-seeking mission to you? No, it doesn't. Typically, as we know, trials, the defendant is innocent until proven guilty, right? But here, they've already made up their minds. They want Jesus dead. And they'll go to any length to make sure that that happens. And just to solidify that point, 
Mark uses a version of the same words several times in this section to make sure that we don't miss it. The words testimony and witness are both the same Greek word, martyria. It's where we get the word martyr. R.C. Sproul notes this, Martyrs were so called in the early church because they gave the most eloquent testimony or witness to Jesus that they possibly could give by dying for him. They testified to the truth of Christ with their lives, and hence were called martyrs, those who gave testimony. These testimonies and witnesses here in our text are false. They're not truthful. They're intentionally contrary to the truth. Verse 56 is actually quite damning. Look at verse 56. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. First, just a a minor thing, but they're breaking the ninth commandment. Not a, a minor thing at all. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. One of the the big ten. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Second, another minor small thing. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 through 20. It says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness, and has accused his brother falsely, check this out, verse 19. Then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. So they violated the ninth commandment, and they don't have two corroborating witnesses. And because this is false witness and they meant Jesus' death, it should have been turned on them, according to Deuteronomy 19. We're not nitpicking here. This is a serious, serious violation of Jewish law. Then, in verses 58 and 59, they misconstrue and misinterpret what Jesus actually said. Jesus, as we learned, was talking about his resurrection when he spoke of the temple. They took him out of context and interpreted him in the worst possible way. This kind of thing is still going on today, right? The secular world, not knowing a lot about the Bible or how to interpret it, takes some obscure passage, twists it, makes it say something completely different, thus condemning Christianity. It's usually not a truth-finding mission. Back in our text, this isn't a fact-finding mission either. It's not about the truth. 
It's about killing Jesus. So here's the the top piece of bread, false witnesses. Now, on to the meat. Point two, a true witness. With all of this going on, let's see how Jesus responds. Look at verses 60 and 61. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? So first... Jesus realizes that responding to such false witnesses or or false testimony is useless. As far as truth is concerned, Jesus is already winning without saying a word. They can't even get their story straight. But more important than that, Jesus is again fulfilling prophecy. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. We'll look more at this next week as well. Isaiah 53, verse 7 says, He was oppressed. So this is about the Messiah. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So to the charges made against him, he opened not his mouth. He remained silent and made no answer, our text says. This trial is not going the way that Caiaphas, or or any of them for that matter, hoped that it would at this point. So then, who knows, maybe in frustration, Caiaphas decides to ask one more question. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Remember, Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. Are you the Christ? Then, this phrase, the Blessed, was code or often substituted for the name of God. Out of reverence for God, they wouldn't even say his name. So they would use the word Lord, or the name, or the blessed. So Caiaphas is asking, Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? You can almost see the scene in your mind when that question gets asked. Everyone kind of leans forward, listening attentively. How's Jesus going to answer? Will he answer? Well, in contrast to the the unfaithful, false witnesses we've seen so far, Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 calls Jesus the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on the earth. The faithful witness, he's called. Look at his response in verse 62. And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. 
This is a bombshell. Remember, up until this point, Jesus, in the book of Mark, has been keeping what we've called the messianic secret. He's told multiple people not to tell anyone who he is. But the time for that is over. He answers directly and clearly in a way that can't be missed. Now, for those who say Jesus never claimed to be God, this is loud and clear. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? I am. Then he references two direct scriptures that refer to God. Psalm 110, which he had previously quoted in the temple. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So they ask Jesus if he's the one. And he says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated where? At the right hand of power. Power is another one of those words that gets often used in the place of the name of God. In other words, the Lord from Psalm 110, I am, that's me. But he also unmistakably is referring to Daniel 7, which we've seen multiple times. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him, meaning this son of man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Again, Jesus is clear as day, saying, that's me. And does anyone remember the setting for this text in Daniel 7? It's a courtroom where he, the Son of Man, is given ultimate authority. It's as if Jesus is saying to to these guys in the trial, today... I'm the one on trial, but someday you will be, and I'll be the judge. Don't forget that. This isn't the last time you'll see me at a trial. And if modern scholars fail to hear what Jesus says, Caiaphas certainly did not. He fully understood what Jesus was saying. Look at verses 63 and 64. It says, And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him to death. Tearing one's garments was a symbol for either grief or rage. And Caiaphas certainly wasn't sad. He's angry. And they condemned him as deserving death. Again, remember, that was against Jewish law. Then, things went from bad to even worse. If you thought that these guys holding a sham trial in the middle of the night, bearing false witness and violating too many laws to count, if you thought they were uncivilized and shameful before, look at verse 65. And some began to spit on him, 
cover his face, to strike him, saying to him, prophecy. And the guards received him with blows. Real gentlemen, huh? Again, we're back in Isaiah. Isaiah 50, verses 5 and 6. Isaiah chapter 50, verses 5 and 6. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Jesus is running the race marked out before him. And later in Peter's life, he, he would look back on this moment and write this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. This is Peter talking about Jesus. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So see this. When, when Caiaphas asked his question, the stakes were high. Jesus was speaking to a room with real earthly authority. He didn't waver for even a second. He was what Revelation 1.5 said he was, a faithful witness. This is the solid rock, the faithful witness. Now, while, while all of this is going on in the courtroom or in the home, at the same time, Peter is out in the courtyard. So as the parade of false witnesses is taking the stand inside, let's see how Peter's doing outside. Point three, Peter's witness. Peter's witness in verses 66 through 72. So here's our bottom piece of bread. Verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. To set this up, in contrast to the religious authorities inside who as we just said, actually had power and cultural influence. Here's a servant girl who has no power, no authority, no influence. Let's keep reading. Verses 66 and 68. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. He went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. Swing and a miss. Strike one. This would have been easy, right? It's a servant girl. But Peter denies his Lord by claiming stupidity. I don't know. I don't understand even what you mean, he says. See how a small temptation can make a great Christian fall? This is Peter, the rock, the one who walked on water, the one who, as we read earlier, made the great confession of Christ. And a simple question 
from a servant girl leads to him denying Jesus. This rock is crumbling. Christian, never discount something as a small sin or a small temptation. J.C. Ryle powerfully implores us here. He says, let us beware of making light of temptations because they seem little and insignificant. There is nothing little that concerns our souls. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little spark may kindle a great fire. A little leak may sink a great ship. A little provocation may bring out from our hearts great corruption and end in bringing our souls into great trouble. I'm begging us this morning to see this in Peter as a warning to our own souls. Don't take sin, even even ones that we consider little, don't take them lightly. So Peter pleads stupidity. Denies Jesus once, and then tries to get some distance out into the gateway. Rooster crows. He seemingly doesn't hear it, but it doesn't stop there. Verses 69 through 72. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. Strike two. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Strike three. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Peter denies Jesus three times, just like Jesus said he would. And the third time, he even invokes a curse, it says, and swears. Isn't this fascinating? Jesus is inside being falsely accused of what? Blasphemy. He's going to die for it. While Peter, most likely, is outside actually committing blasphemy, In the courtyard. Jesus is being condemned for the same sin that Peter is committing. In my place, condemned he stood, we sang earlier. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Immediately, upon denying him the third time, the rooster crows. Peter realizes what he's done. He weeps. There's a recognition of what he's done and heartfelt, seemingly true repentance. See this. At the end of Jesus' life, we have two portraits of two failed disciples. Last week, Judas. This week, Peter. But they couldn't be more different in their outcomes, are they? Judas betrays Jesus, 
and responds only in regret, ultimately killing himself. Not Peter. He responds to his sin very, very differently. And I want to point us to one key moment here at the end of our text in verse 72. Peter remembers Jesus' words. He repents and then takes up Jesus' call to him from Luke twenty-two thirty-two. Jesus said to Peter, And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Because Jesus, or Peter trusted in Jesus fully, even in his darkest hour, he could have hope. Trusting in Jesus' grace and mercy and forgiveness. He had hope because he knew who Jesus was. In our text today, we have a clear contrast between unfaithful witnesses and the faithful witness. And here's the good news. Even when Peter was unfaithful to Jesus, Jesus never stopped being unfaithful to him. Jesus' love for Peter didn't rest upon Peter's love for Jesus or upon Peter's perfect record. Isn't that good news? Jesus would willingly die for Peter's sin just a couple of hours later. This is what Jesus does. He lives perfectly. He dies for wretched, wretched sinners like you and me and Peter. This isn't fair, but it's good news, and it's beautiful, and it's what we as Christians cling to with every fiber of our being. It's the truth that that brings us joy and gives us hope. Not that we're good and righteous people, but that Jesus was on our behalf. He's the solid rock, even when we, like Peter, crumble. If you're not a Christian and you're wondering, how in the world do I access this amazing saving grace? How do I do that? Jesus, in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, couldn't make it any clearer. How do we access this saving grace? Through repentance and belief. Repentance and belief. Like Peter, acknowledge your sin and turn from it. That's repentance. And believe. Place your hope in Christ, knowing that that you're forgiven because he died in your place. In closing, a fun little piece of history for us here. Have you ever wondered why a lot of times weather vanes have roosters on them? It's kind of a weird thing to pair together, right? Well, it's because churches used to have roosters put on the tops of their steeples. It was typically the highest point in town. So weather vanes got added to them so that people could look up and see which way the wind was blowing. And, And here's why I'm telling you this. The church throughout history has always wanted to be reminded of this specific moment in Peter's life and to be connected to it 
Why? Because we're all Peter. Our hope isn't that we're faithful, but that he is. That's the point of this text this morning. He's the solid rock, especially when we crumble. So let's pray 